Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Greetings, culture vultures of the world, and welcome to another Book Off. I'm your host, Joe Haddo, and in this episode, I fear it's going to get pretty geeky pretty quickly, because my guests today are both huge music fans. One, a legend of the crime-writing world, the other, a legend of the music journalism world. It's a pleasure to have you both here. Mark Billingham, David Hepworth, welcome. Thank thanks you. for having us. Yes. Good morning. Well, thanks for, um, you know, arranging your dentist appointment around <laughs> this to... <laughs> Yes, I have to point out to the listeners, I, had, I was in a dentist chair a few hours ago, so I'm breaking in a new mouth <laughs> the process, in the process. Sounding really good at the moment. It has to, <laughs> we has shall to be see. <laughs> um, Mark, you and I met many, many moons ago. You may remember on a sofa at Harrogate Crime Festival. I do. And... Rather than bonding over books, then we, we talked for talked about an about hour music. about Steely Dan. <laughs> is what we did. You were supposed to, I think you were supposed to be interviewing me about some crime novel or other, and we just ended up talking about Steely Dan. Yes, the, we we didn't use hardly any of that interview, I think, because we were <laughs> we were just talking about Steely Asia, Dan you know. are always more interesting always. than any other subject. Always, yeah, pretty yeah. much guaranteed. No, absolutely. Uh, I thought it's interesting you should say that because I, I, I well I met Mark you know, through mutual friends, but. Uh, I think we first spent some time together at the Larn Festival. Yes. Probably three years ago, yeah, probably like this that. week, I think. It is this very weekend, actually. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and we ended up in a, in, a, in a restaurant with Mark Ellen, and you, know, and you had a, lot of, a bunch of author mates. And all I wanted to talk to, I wanted to hear from the authors about authing and all this stuff, you know. And all they wanted to talk about was smash hits. Yes, <laughs> yes, of course. It was, it was, it was, it was extraordinary, <laughs> and it was a, a riotous evening. It just went on forever. Didn't well, I think it? I think you or somebody else said something like, "What's the best gig you've ever been to?" Uh, or, I, and I you know, the next three hours, or the worst. <laughs> Maybe it was the worst. Gig. But you know, three hours flew by, oh, and it was absolutely. just. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I, it's especially true of crime authors. I don't know whether yeah. you've you found this with other authors, Joe. It's especially true of crime authors that actually there is that real musical, geeky thing. There's music in the books. We're all frustrated yeah, yeah. rock stars or <laughs> pop stars or something. And, and there, there is, there's always a strong connection between, between crime writers and music, I think. I, I completely agree. And it, and it is very common in crime writers and actually meeting you and, and 
us getting on along about Steely Dan was just the tip of the iceberg, really, to what has then unfolded into <laughs> curries and nights like you're describing, yeah. David, of talking about gigs and albums and getting a bit, you know, too in depth. <laughs> yes. Is there a kind of crime, uh, you know, hero who's into Steely Dan? Um, I don't know about one about Steely Dan in particular. I mean, there was a show several years ago which I contributed to called Music to Die For, which was presented by Ian Rankin and was basically crime writers from all over the world talking about the music that's influenced their books. Um, so there were people talking, lots of jazz. Obviously, detectives yes. quite famously like <laughs> jazz, which has never been my cup of tea. Um, but, you know, there's, I mean, you know, from Morse liking opera and Harry Bosch liking jazz and, and Ian and his Rolling Stones and his, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, we were beating them off with a stick. You couldn't, you know, author, every author, every crime author, really, at some, at some level, is, is a massive music fan. But what I was going to say is, Dave, don't, doesn't everybody you meet want to talk about smash hits? Like, uh, well, it's quite a common thing, actually. <laughs> I, I, was, I, I was saying only the other night in front of a room full of people that, like everybody else who once worked at smash hits, you know, you're, you're grateful for the fact that as you go through life, you can stand up in front of any gathering anywhere in the world, and if it's all going wrong, you say, I once worked on a magazine called Smash Hits. Did anybody here once read it? And I guarantee you that there will be somebody who did. And somebody came up to me the other night. At a, I was appearing at, a, at an event in Stoke Newington, and a woman who I imagine was probably in her 40s came towards me with a clutching a copy of Smash Hits from 1981, I think. A copy I hadn't thought of since 1981. It featured on the cover Sal Solo of Classics Nouveau. Do you remember that? I the do. chrome I dome do, yeah. goth, you know, uh, forerunner. And, uh, and she said, would you mind signing your singles reviews? So this is this this happened in two thousand you know nineteen eighty one, and here we are two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, wow. You know that somebody something so ephemeral. Yeah, could turn out to be so yeah. kind I, of well, enduring. I think those things that appeal. are important to you when you're. 15, 16, Absolutely. 17, are going to be important to you for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, I'm very sad day the other day when the NME, you know, last yeah. NME issue. Yeah. I mean, you know, every Thursday morning, every Thursday morning it was that, that Rich Love getting the NME, Wednesday doing the London. crossword. Was Wednesday it Wednesday? Oh, we didn't get it until Thursday in Birmingham. <laughs> <Wednesday> <laughs> in the Took a day London. to get up there. Wednesday lunchtime, oh, really? there used to be a new stand at Oxford Circus Station, and I used to work at the H&V shop. And, and I would go up there at about one o'clock Wednesday and stand there nervously waiting for the early copies to be wow. delivered. That was, the, that was the equivalent of the internet. Yeah. That was <laughs> yes. social media. That was multi-channel TV. Yeah. All in one yeah. newspaper. And yeah. of course, the thing about enemy as opposed to Smash Hits, being a newspaper, people didn't keep it. Where yeah. smash hits, they've kept a few copies, yeah. mm. so they do. They come towards you clutching them. You know, it's, yeah, it's very endearing, really. I shouldn't laugh really because I remember when um, I I went and saw Mark Ellen, who you mentioned earlier, uh, about his book, and I just wanged on to him about Select Magazine for about oh, well, ten minutes, yeah. and you could see him sort of going, "All right, yeah, you've sort of you've covered <laughs> yeah. you've covered the ground now. Can yeah. we talk about my book now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and do you remember this episode of Select when you you know, you know Mark Mark told me something interesting about about author author signings because Mark was kind of ahead of me in this in this game, and Mark Billingham will know a lot more about it. And Mark's theory is 
always watch for the person who's hanging about at the back of the queue <laughs> because the person who's at the back of the line wants to talk to you yeah. about something that you probably don't remember that they do remember. Yeah. And they'll let everybody else go in front of them. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they're at the front of the queue oh, and they right. still want to talk to you. And there's people behind going, I just want to, this is going on eBay. I just want a signature. I don't want to chat. <laughs> But this um, idea of, of the memories that mean a lot to music lovers and from, from your youth, in a way, David, um, thinking about your n- new book on Common People, you're taking these sort of like key moments from some of the rock stars' lives and sort of documenting that. And I just wonder where, where that idea came from. Well, I just, you know, my first book was about 1971, was the Annus Mirabilis of the rock and roll album. And, um, you know, that did... That did surprisingly well. And so they said, oh, we want another. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I want to write something about rock stars as a, as a group, as a tribe, you know, um, because I didn't think anybody had done it. And uh, I'd always been fascinated by rock stars, you know, both as a fan and then kind of meeting them professionally and observing them as this tribe. And... Um, and so they said, yeah, great, do that. And then I thought, well, you, you've got to just have this in some manageable form. And mm. so I, you know, I came upon this idea of, uh, of just doing one event on one day in each year between 1955, which is my, you know, uh, first year of the, the era of the rock star, and, uh, and 1994, which is my end, ending point. And so what I hope you'll get... Is is something equivalent to the kind of experience of looking at a flick book, you know? I mean, as it goes past you, you see the changing shape of the rock star mm. during that period. Because what I think I wanted to do was um, was push back against the kind of contemporary cliche of the rock star that is enshrined in TV and in fashion spreads, and you know, which is some kind of stick insect in in leather trousers who's done a lot of cocaine. And is throwing, you know, televisions out of hotel room windows. And my point about rock, the rock star is it contained John Lennon, but it contained Buddy Holly, it contained Ian Dury, it contained Stevie Nicks, it contained all kinds of people, mm. you know, who, who uh, by virtue of that combination of their personality and their music became rock stars, you know. And uh, I think that was, that was an era that had a start and had an ending, you know, and I do believe that musical eras um, tend to last 40 years. Um, you know, jazz, 40 years. Country music, 40 years. Some people say Baroque, 40 years as well. I don't, <laughs> I really? I don't know that much about it. <laughs> I've never it. said that. No. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so my rock and roll era is 40 years. We're now, you know, we're well into the hip-hop era, mm-hmm. probably coming towards the end of it. There's probably another one coming along, you know, a different thing uh, coming along years. after. 40 years. 40 so years think cycles. about that. Okay. What do you reckon, Mark? Forty years? I, do you th- I hope something else is coming. Do well, you think something else is coming? It's to, there's always something else coming. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, hip hop's here, and yeah. you know, well, not just here. It's obviously been for you know best part of thirty years. Yeah. There's always something coming, and it'll tend to be a kind of, you know, it'll it'll be arrived at by some coincidence between kind of creativity mm. and technology. So is grime, grime the new? Well, the certainly, new one? people would. Many people would say that. Mm. I wouldn't claim to. I wouldn't claim to know. I don't claim any expertise. When you it. say forty years, do you mean forty years where where that musical style is preeminent? Yes. 
I, I mean, it carries on. I mean, obviously, it carries still on. Got absolutely, music, the jazz. The jazz kind of um, parallel is is interesting because, you know, from the end of the First World War to to the end of the fifties, jazz is the premier heartbeat of popular music. Mm, it's yeah. what people dance to. It's what people, you know, courted to. You know, in its broadest possible sense, from Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, all this stuff. And then from the mid-50s to the mid-90s, it's kind of broadly rock and roll. Yeah. It's a load of performers who may have been very different, but they could all probably have played you a Chuck Berry song. You know, they all, they all connected back to some tradition, you know. And then post that, it's hip-hop, and that's a different thing. It's put together in a different way. Mm. And it's also kind of super pop and, you know, Taylor Swift and all this stuff. That's, that's another world of its own. Somebody bought me a, um, the cover of The Melody Maker that was published on the day I was born. Uh, and we're in that kind of area, <laughs> time-wise. <laughs> and the front cover is, is this the end for trad? Uh, you know, it's kind of like, yes. that, that's what it said on the front of the Melody Maker. Wow. Yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. end for trad jazz. The end for trad. <laughs> and it was. Yeah. Yeah. They so knew. What, what year are we talking about? We're talking yeah. 61. 61. We're talking 61. Okay. But, so, so Kenny it, it, Ball. It limped on yeah, a little bit. Was, Kenny Ball was still having hits, probably. Mm. That's a, a friend of mine, a crime writer who you know called Martin Waits. Uh, we talk about this thing about how detectives, noirish detectives, always like jazz. Yes. They go yeah. home and they listen to a bit of jazz. So but it's cool. never Acker Bilk or Kenny Ball. Absolutely. It's never trad. Absolutely. Why not? No. You know, you know. He sat in the armchair and put the needle on the. Bar. It should be, it should be East St. Louis to with Lou, you know, at Duke Ellington. It, it should be perky dance music. No, I no, no, think that's a very good idea. And the modern ones, it's it's tuneless Icelandic jazz, which really oh, that, dear. not you know, your bag, is it? Absolutely not no, my bag. A bit of Mel Torme instead. <laughs> <laughs> but talking of rock stars, yes, sir. Um, of course, you are in this. Wonderful band, and I don't know, David, if you've had the pleasure of witnessing this musical feat. No, I don't. Not live of not the fun-loving crime writers. Yeah, which is so much more fun than writing books. <laughs> so the, we're having such a good time that all of us, you know, we do a show and then we have this come down. We're all, we're all sort of emailing each other for the next two days, going, "Are you feeling as miserable as something?" Because <laughs> really? it's such. Oh, it's such a was. It started kind of accidentally. It started in of all places, the House of Blues in New Orleans, where. Yeah, why not? Where all great rock stories <laughs> start. Um, but there was the, the World Mystery Convention is in a different city every year. And it was in New Orleans, and on the last night, there was this idea that there'd be this gig in the House of Blues, and there would be a band uh, made up of American crime, you know, an American crime writer fronting this band, and, and she would then introduce various people up who wanted to do a bit. And something similar had happened before. So myself and the Irish writer Stuart Neville and the Scottish writer Doug Johnson thought, oh, let's do a bit. But when we turned up, the gig went very pear-shaped very quickly and, and it, you know, people were leaving. It wasn't working out. And as this band left the stage in kind of high dudgeon, uh, the lead singer shouted, where are the Brits? Where are the Br There are some Brits. So we went and looked, all looked at each other and went, oh, OK. So we shambled up with this local uh, crime writer who happened to play drums a bit and just busked our way mm. through Werewolves of London by <laughs> uh, Folsom Prison Blues and of all things 500 Miles by the Proclaimers wow. just busked our way through bought the house down uh, largely because of what we were following I think if I'm yes. honest uh, anyway wound up on YouTube suddenly the director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival says right I'm programming you to do an hour and a half in August and we went what? 
A, there's only three of us, and B, we only know three songs. <laughs> so we, we put this band together. So, yeah, Val McDermott sings, we'll get Val McDermott. And I said, Luca Veste, do you play bass? Yes. So suddenly, and Chris Brookmeyer, suddenly we got this band, we rehearsed, we made our debut in, in August last year at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and it's just gone on from then, and we're just getting booked all over the place, loving it. I mean, absolutely loving it. There's three brilliant musicians in the band, I must be honest, three proper musicians who are Stuart, Doug, and Luca Veste. They've all played in bands all their lives who are brilliant. Myself, Val, and Chris are kind of busking <laughs> I've got, to, I've got to say this. It, it, you know, it, Mark, I think Mark's been you know, false, guilty of false modesty mm. here because Mark can sing mm. and can play. I, I, I haven't seen him with this man, but I've seen him oh, in, you have, in, yes. other, in other contexts. In other contexts. And he genuinely yeah. can, you know. Because what I was first thought when I met Mark was, uh, you know, you go to these things, you're surrounded by show-offs. <laughs> you know, Mark Ellen, you know, whatever. Uh, and... Uh, and I realised that Mark is a, as a as a show off, as a triple threat, you know, because he's a writer, mm. he's an actor, mm. and he's a musician. Oh, I know, and it's yeah. that's just that's a hell of a. He didn't say comedian though. I know he didn't throw that one. In. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was another life. Uh, but no, to be to be serious, we are absolutely loving it. Absolutely loving it. So so what we do is the band are as the, the band get programmed for a festival. And for their money, for booking the band, they also get six crime writers who they can then use to do yeah, of panels and interviews and one-on-one. So we're quite a good deal. Yeah. You know? So, uh, seriously, when you did, had your debut, you yeah. did classics, you did you know, Folsom Prison, whatever. Yeah. Have you stuck to that policy? Completely. It's all so cover versions. So nobody's version. coming along and saying, I've... Did you know what? Did I... <laughs> That's where it goes wrong. Uh, that's where we would split up instantly. We God. know that. We know that. No, they're all cover versions. They're all cover versions about crime and murder. So, you know, watching the detectives and Very good. Hey Joe, mm. Sympathy for the Devil. Is a good thing. You know, that kind of stuff. Um so they're all they're all songs about murder and uh, and crime and they're all themed and no, absolutely no original material. <laughs> you know, we're not making an album anytime soon. We're a party band. We are a party band, but we're loving it. We're absolutely loving you could do Excitable Boy by uh, Warren Zevon if you want to. But we also have a policy, you see, of only doing any one track by anyone else. Oh, oh, very good. I okay. mean, there, oh, there are so, so many Hank Williams I didn't know songs. About we could the do. Rules. So many Johnny Cash songs we could do. But because we, you know, we've got a Hank Williams, we've got a Johnny Cash, we've got a Stones, we've got a Warren Zevon, mm. we've got, you know, new songs coming into the set soon. By the, we're doing the Jam. So, so which you... Jam song are we doing? Go on. Well, what? we're doing we're doing down in the tube station at night, which is about a murder. I mean, oh, is he? What is it? I'd never really listened to the lyrics before, but he, he he's get he gets murdered. He dies. Oh, you know, I didn't know that. Right. The end of that song. So when you play, do you do you kind of do you have a poster outside that says, you know, you this band will play the following songs? <laughs> no, seriously, I is think that what bands should... used to do. Well, if you go to a classical concert, mm-hmm. you know what they're going to play. You get a damn program at the proms saying they're going to play, you know, so and so's piano concerto, and this is how long it's going to last, and yeah. then there's going to be a break. Only in a rock show are you expected to turn up and just surrender yourself to whatever these clowns feel like doing. <laughs> Whereas, if you said to me, I guarantee we're going to play 10 songs all about murders, and you've heard them before. I'm there. Yeah. Good. Well, maybe that maybe that's why there is this current trend for bands to go on the road and play the whole of albums. There is. You know, you're going to hear the whole of Close to the Edge no, or whatever the it might be. That, the guarantee of that is, we won't play our new one. Yeah, yes. that's what, <laughs> that's what's getting people in. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. true. Are there any worse words to hear in a, a, yeah. as part of an audience? And, and here's some stuff from our new album. <laughs> yeah. is, it, is it time to go to the bar? Yeah. Or as Mick Jagger used to say in the middle of a stone sack, Keith's going to do one oh, now. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or there's always that moment in a po- when the Pogues play now, when when Shane leaves the stage. 
And, uh, you know, for, for, for 10 or 15 minutes or however long he needs, he leaves the stage and they kind of stop being the Pogues. Really? It's a, it's a very odd thing and then back he like comes. Like an intermission almost. Or yeah, something. but they don't stop. No, oh, right. I, see. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also think David's um, looking for the manager job. Uh, the way that he's going about yeah, talking well, to you here. But... <laughs> you know, no, I, 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 I always say that I'd like to sit most musicians down and give them 10 minutes of my advice, but none of them will ever listen to it. Because <laughs> what, what I've learned, from, I know loads of guys who've managed bands and they you cannot get through to musicians. Mm. They are not interested. They're completely in their own, in their own little world. It's the... It's the only... Um, I've observed this at close quarters for years. I think if, it, if, if an actor is appearing in front of a house who aren't paying attention, you can tell that the actor has noticed. And the actor will be taking steps to remedy this. Yeah. Mm. Similarly, a comic, similarly, a business speaker, or anybody like that. Musicians, not at all. And the louder the musicians are, the more truth there is in that because they're completely in their, their own world. They want to play. You're just there to kind of justify yeah. them playing. You're not, they're not playing for you. They're playing for themselves. And so do you, do you, do you think they don't care? I mean, it, it, uh, you know, because the, the, the band I'm in are primarily, we do something else, we do notice that stuff. So, so after the show, we'll go, oh, I, the energy dipped a bit yes, during that song. get rid we? of that. But do you think Mick Jagger comes off stage and he goes, I didn't go for Paint It Black tonight. <laughs> does he care? Well, I, I mean, think he probably does, but I think the average band doesn't at all. Oh, right. They only care about their bit. You know, <laughs> well, did, yeah. did my solo go well? They, they can filter everything else out. Or, my soda was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leave it at that. Let's yeah. have a beer, yeah. Have you ever played, David? Do you play? or you No, not in public. <laughs> no, right, OK. <laughs> I have grade one piano and three chords on, on a guitar, but I've, no, not in public. Um, and we, just to return to your book very briefly, the you mentioned that timeline from 55 to 94. Out of all of the... You know, mo rock moments that you research. Do you have a, a favorite or a couple of favorites that you've? That well, you wrote I suppose about? I, I, the person I, I came out of writing the book with kind of renewed respect for, uh, who I the person who I think is actually the key rock star, if you're going to have one, mm. is Buddy Holly, because mm. Buddy Holly, you know, he looked like the boy next door. He didn't look like he'd come from Venus. He didn't look like he'd come out of the woods. You know, he just looked like the boy next door. And he sang songs about his girlfriend. And the people, uh, you know, like John Lennon, who saw him when he came and played the Sunday Night at London, played him. Um, and they, you know, fixed upon this figure with the guitar and the, and the mates in his group and just looked at him and thought, I could do that. Mm. You know, and, and John Fogerty of Creedence Clearwater Revival, he looked at it and thought, I can do that. There's a way forward with this, you know. And so, you know, one of the points I made in the book is that is that I think when the generation of the 60s comes along, you know, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles and so forth, they're the children of Buddy Holly. And I think there's something about Buddy Holly that still exists in kind of you know, the most pale and wan indie group that you might see doing a session on the radio. Or something. Yeah. There's something about them. They, they say, I'm sincere. I'm the boy next door. I invented this myself, you know. It's yeah. kind of... Was he also, was he the first person to kind of front a band with a Strat? 
I mean, was that he part probably, of it? I think it was part of it. But yeah. don't forget, in those days, people didn't see people very often. Right. You know, TV appearances were rare. But yes, that was hugely influential. You know, and, uh, well, yeah. Hank Marvin saw oh, Buddy Holly, right? And wow. that's right, right. That's yeah. why he wanted that kind of guitar and you know all this kind of stuff, and and got Cliff Richards to to pay for it and, and send <laughs> off send off to California to get it, and they had to wait months for it to come. And it, you know, post-war kind of restrictions on trade were still in in place. Mm. And when this, you know, this precious object arrived in London, people used to gather from far and near just to look at it, <laughs> and, because it it appeared to have come from the future. Yeah. You know, because that stuff wasn't available to most people in their daily lives. So it still intrigues me. I should go down into Oxford Circus after recording this, and there'll probably be a guy busking who's dressed up to look like Hank Marvin. Have you noticed that guy? <laughs> He's been there years. Oh, really? Playing Apache or FBI or whatever with the backing track on the guitar. Does he do the shadow step? <laughs> yeah, I think I have seen him do it. He has Hank Marvin glasses, you know, no doubt plain glass. Where is this uh, musician? Just on the tunnel going down to the Victoria. Oh, right. Well, I left it now. He's not there all the time, you know, yeah. but he, he might well be there. He's got a life. He's I mean, got, come on, he's not, he's got other not there just for your entertainment. Yeah, well, busking's a very controlled business nowadays, <laughs> it isn't it? You is, can't yeah. just turn up and do it. No, you've got your spot and you've got to apply yeah, for it, haven't absolutely, you? Absolutely. You've got to be yeah. vetted, I think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, Mike, we should just talk a little bit about your new book as well, uh -huh. Love Like Blood, because um, it's something a little different from you, and it came about after after reading a horrendous news story. Well, it was it was largely it's not a book about this particular crime, but it but this crime kind of haunts the, the pages of the book. I think it was it just quite simply the nastiest, most brutal murder I ever read about, which is mm. this murder of this young woman called Benaz Mahmoud, who was twenty one. Uh, in 2006 and, and that story had lodged in my head somewhere and then I watched this amazing documentary called Banaz, A Love Story she was basically murdered by her family who conspired to have her killed because she fell in love with a boy they didn't approve of I mean it's, it was honour killing so-called honour killing um, and it was absolutely vile and, and it, I just decided it was a subject I wanted to write about really um, 
apart from anything else, it's the most massively underreported mm. crime, you know. And crime writers are forever banging on, and I'm one of them, about how crime fiction can can be social fiction to a degree and can really look at the world we live in because, you know, arguably we get the crimes we deserve. And you look at crime and it tells you a lot about, about the society. Uh, not that you should write a book with an agenda, because I, I also think if you write a book with an agenda, it's going to be a dog of a book. Yeah. But... I do believe that crime writers can do that. Having said that, we can only get away with saying that for so long while we're turning out books about patent serial killers. You know, because yeah. yeah. thankfully there aren't too many of them running around. But, <laughs> but there is an awful lot of underreported honour-based violence. I mean, it's, it's horrendous. At least a dozen murders a year reported. They're reported and accounted for, wow. but way more than that because it's not reported because fear of reprisals within communities. And also some of these, the victims of these crimes are just spirited away, mm. never to be seen again, a, a wedding abroad, a, mm. a birthday, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I wanted to write about that. And I can honestly say I don't think I've ever been... And the more I researched it and looked into it, the more people I spoke to, the kind of angrier I got. And, I, and I've never been as furious writing a book, which I hope ended up being a good thing. Um, it's certainly a book I was very pleased with by the time I'd finished. But... Um, yeah, kind of a different book. And I mean, actually, I never thought I'd do it again, but the book that I've got coming out in June is about a real case as well. Very, very different case. You remember the case of the Croydon Cat Killer? Yes. Okay, so a case that remains as yet unsolved. Yes. This guy is just an individual who's killed at least 450 cats, mostly pet cats, but also foxes, squirrels, whatever takes this person's fancy and is unapprehended. This has been going on for a couple of years, and obviously the police are concerned that this individual might go on to do other things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's the kind of basis for the next book. For the next book, yeah. wow. Uh, so, gents, it's time for the book off. Oh, uh, right. One of the, the reasons you are here where you bring to the table a, a book that you absolutely love, that you think um, everyone should read. And I'm very, very conscious of never saying favourite book because I think that's too hard and too big a sort of stamp to put on something. Um, equally, I would never ask anyone for their favourite album but what I did want to ask before we get into the book of is and I'm putting you on the spot obviously here if we were doing a musical version of this what album might you be putting up today well yours has to be from 1971 presumably, oh. right? you can't not pick a 1971 <laughs> album now so what am I supposed to choose a record that everybody should, should listen to you see well I I wouldn't I don't believe in that okay. I don't want okay. to shoot your fox no here no that's all right that's but okay. I'll tell you why because, you know, people always say to me, what should I be listening to? And my response is, you should listen to whatever the hell you want to listen to. Because music, particularly, is a question of being receptive. You know, you're, you've got to be in an emotional state to, to find any kind of bonding with music. So I believe with music, you don't go and pursue it. It finds you. Mm. And, and you'll eventually come to a point in your life where you'll hear whatever it is you know, Charlie Parker, and it'll suddenly sound sensible, whereas six months earlier it might not have done or whatever. And mm. I think that, that certainly applies to music. You know, I think all you can do is be receptive. And, you know, all I've ever said, the only categorical statement I make about music is that the best single ever made is Chuck Berry's You Never Can Tell. It's as simple as that because it's an utterly charming song about a wedding written by and performed by a man who was the antithesis of charm himself <laughs> in every respect. <laughs> it doesn't particularly feature his guitar. Many people think it was actually written by the piano player, Johnny Johnson. Oh, right. uh, but it it's, uh, never fails to delight my heart 
Mm. And Chuck Berry was the first person I ever saw live. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and they played that record. My daughter played that record at her wedding. You know, oh, so I thought that lovely. was quite sweet. Well, I, I, I can't really ask you necessarily oh, about the album that you had put up then, can I, against that? Because yeah, there's nothing no, to put I'm, it against. No, I'm so. happy to force albums down people's throats <laughs> and say, you must listen to this. Poke them with a stick until they, <laughs> until they do. Um, oh, it could be all sorts of people, Joe, you know it could. Uh, but I'm gonna, it, for me, it's going to have to be an Elvis Costello album. And it <laughs> could it be Imperial yeah. It could be Imperial Bedroom, it could be King of America, but, uh, but if you put a gun to my head, I would pick this year's model, Ooh, which is, right, you know, okay. over 40 years old mm. and still sounds just incredible and actually has some parallels with the book I'm going to talk about in a minute but but it, it just the sound of it is just extraordinary still you know four decades on and it's visceral and yeah angry and all that stuff but it absolutely blows me away each time I listen to it so check that out listeners <laughs> and interestingly um, Costello is one of those artists who when you talk to authors about music he comes up so often because I yeah. think he there's something in the lyrics and the stories that he tells that resonate with writers. I, I think writers writers are always going to be attr- attracted to artists who are great lyricists. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think that's any mystery. Um, and he's just always been one. You know, there there have been moments when when I've kind of drifted away from Elvis in his in his jazzier period or the, in, in the period when he's too happy and he's trying to write love songs. Stop it, Elvis. Get miserable again. Um, I, no, I joke, I joke. But, you know... The, if you could tell my my sixteen year old self that one day I'd be sitting on stage interviewing him, I mean that was still mm. you could you know I'd, I'd burn all my crime novels tomorrow for you know no I wouldn't not quite <laughs> no, but it was uh, yeah he was and I know you've spoken to him he's not the easiest of of interviewees oh, but it was it was a he's joy all to right do. it's fine mm. that was a moment for you though oh it, God it was a moment because it was what really made it a moment it was on stage at the Royal Court Theatre in Liverpool. And the only other time I'd been on stage at the Royal Court Theatre Liverpool was in 1986 when I went to see Elvis and he was doing the spectacular spinning songbook. And I got pulled up on stage <laughs> to spin that songbook. If you can be bothered, it's on YouTube. Um, sort of 25-year-old me in a donkey jacket spinning this thing and then having to dance in what was called the go-go bonus cage on stage, having been pulled up by Elvis. And so the first question, I, the first thing I said to him was, I haven't been on the stage for kind of 30 years, Elvis, and uh, the last time. So it was, a, it was a lovely moment for me. And to talk about his book, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And Although he seemed to get a little bit irk, irksome that I'd read it in a day or in two days. And he said, it's, it, took me, it took me eight days to record the audio version of it. It's a big book. It was a, but, it's a you know, thick old book. Couldn't put it yeah. down. Uh, well, let's talk books then. It's it's yes. time for this. And to uh, determine who goes first or oh. second, we've got to do the old heads or tails, haven't we? Um, Mark, do you want to call it? Oh, heads. Tails. So, D- David, first or second for you? I go first. And would you like a honk <laughs> or a bell? Give me a honk. <laughs> You're getting a honk, absolutely. So that's my time limit when you... You've got three minutes, David, and you can use it or you can choose to not use it all, but the moment it hits three minutes, I'm going to honk you out. No, Um, So tell us, just before you start, what book you are going to talk about. It's not a book. It's It's an album. Somebody has fundamentally misunderstood (laughs) the basis of this podcast. It's, It's four books. Okay, mm. uh, which might lead you to believe that it's kind of you know sword and sorcery, you mm-hmm. know, huge great thing. It's not. It's a, it's four a four part political uh, biography, mm-hmm. and and it's already three thousand words, uh, three thousand pages long, but it's not finished. Okay, 
And this is The Years of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro. OK, David, three minutes on The Years of Lyndon Johnson starts now. He started writing this in 1982. And at that point, his idea was it was going to be a three-part look at the career of this man who famously became president of the United States following the death of John F. Kennedy because he was vice president, served the rest of that term and then was elected as president in 1964. And in 1968, uh, against all uh, precedent, he said, I shall not seek nor will I accept the nomination of my party for the Democratic for the presidency. And uh, he, he kind of retired. Uh, the Vietnam War was entirely blamed on him. And uh, he he died not long afterwards. He didn't live very long afterwards. But it's an extraordinary story because Lyndon Johnson came from the Texas Hill Country. He came from as unpromising a background as anybody who ever made it to the President of the United States. There was no reason to believe in his background or his education or his personal qualities that he had anything that would ever get him into that kind of office. And yet, at the age of about 10, he would tell the kids in his dirt-poor school in the hill country of Texas he was going to be president of the United States. And some of them might have believed him because although he was pretty much devoid of personal charm... (laughs) And, uh, you know, the, the, the books are littered with examples of his absence of personal charm. And I would only quote one that when he was a senior, you know, Senate majority leader, he used to insist that uh, his secretaries took dictation from him as he defecated. OK, so this gives you an idea of where Lyndon Johnson, you know, stood on the, in the pantheon of, of charming individuals. And yes... He had staggering determination. It was absolutely burned within him that he was going to reach whatever possible eminence and power he possibly could. And he did this by never declaring a principal position on anything at all, uh, by studying the weak points of his opponents, by having uh, you know billionaire backers who who paid for him to to do their bidding, by uh, very often stealing elections, and by uh, getting over to his people that the only important thing in politics was to know how to count, because it was all about votes. It was all about could you could you get through certain votes. The book charts his his rise from the hill country of Texas to being in the House of Representatives, to eventually running for the Senate, failing to get into the Senate because it's stolen from him, and then being determined that he he will steal the next one himself, becoming the senior person in the Senate, then getting a chance to be the vice president with JFK in 1960. He thinks, that's my last chance. And uh, and then, of course, the tragic events in Dallas in in November 1963... (laughs) Bullets him into the presidency. It's an extraordinary story, and I'm just going to add one more thing. Oh, look at this. You say, I'll, I'll take a note of the extra time. Yeah, okay. you do. Okay. The fifth volume, Robert Caro is in his 70s. Fifth volume is yet to be written because Robert Caro says he won't write it until he and his wife can go and live in Vietnam for a few years as he writes it. Okay. Wow. Okay. The years wow. of Lyndon Johnson. <clears throat> wow. 
pretty good pitch. Four books. Four. That's, a, that's a picture come? of four books. How many thousand words did you say? 3,000 uh, 3, oh, pages already. 3,000 pages. 3,000 pages. Likes. Right then, Mark, you ready to follow that? I'll, I'll give it a go. I haven't got any defecating precedents, but I, you know, I can't, can't match that. But. Um, well, let's see what you've got. But first, tell us the book you're going to talk about. The book I'm going to talk about, a much slimmer volume, is The Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett. His third novel. The Maltese Falcon. Oh, right. You've got three minutes then. It's over to you. Well, The Maltese Falcon, uh, which was published in 1929, is often listed as the greatest mystery novel ever written. It always tops those lists. I would argue that I would argue that it certainly deserves that reputation, but the, the, the reputation doesn't just rest on the fact that it's a hugely influential novel. It kind of kick-started the whole hard-boiled movement that arguably there would be no Philip Marlowe and Raymond Chandler, there would be no Ross MacDonald, any of those writers, without Hammett. But I think it deserves that reputation because it's also a great novel. Um, Americans, of course, call crime fiction mystery fiction, uh, which often doesn't really apply to certainly a lot of the crime novels I enjoy. But actually, this is the archetypal mystery novel. And at its heart is this incredible mystery. And it's not the mystery of the Maltese Falcon. The Maltese Falcon is the greatest MacGuffin in the history <laughs> of mystery fiction. The book is not about that. The book is, is essentially about who is Sam Spade, who is this iconic detective who appeared in one novel and one novel only. This this one, who is you know everybody knows who Sam Spade is, but he he only appeared in in the one novel, and it's who this character is, and and the great trick that Hammett pulls off is that we only discover who Sam Spade is or who we think Sam Spade is through what he says and what he does. He was a real proponent of less is more, Hammett, and he knew what he was talking about because he used to work for the Pinkerton Detective Agency, uh, and Sam Spade was 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 this fictionalized fictionalized version of all of everything all the detectives he knew wanted to be. He's morally extremely dubious, Sam Spade, hugely dubious. He's supposed to be investigating the death, the murder of his partner, Miles Archer. But, you know, as soon as he hears the news, he lights a cigarette. He then, he then removes Archer's name from, from the sign on the door. Oh, he's also having an affair with Archer's wife. I should throw that in. And then he falls in with this incredible cast of characters, Joel Cairo, Casper Goodman, the fat man, and Bridget O'Shaughnessy, who's the archetypal femme fatale, who he also sleeps with uh, just because he can. Um, and the question is, why? Why is he doing these things? Does he want this, this falcon for himself? Is he really out to avenge his partner? We kind of never know. And, and we're, we're invited to theorise about this. That's the mystery at the heart of the novel. Um, most people know the Maltese falcon because of the film. It's a great film. That was 1949, John Huston. But what's interesting is that Humphrey Bogart, who played Sam Spade, exactly the same way he, he, he also played Philip Marlowe, <laughs> uh, that is not Sam Spade. The original actor who John Huston wanted to play Sam Spade was George Raft, who actually had played, you know, psychopaths and villains, and is much closer to, to Hammett's description of Spade as a blonde Satan. That's how he's described, kind of, in the first in the first chapter. Um, it's almost a hundred years since it was written, and and the prose is still fantastic. A lot of novels that old have really not dated well. I don't think Chandler's dated as well. Chandler's often supposed to be the prose stylist, you know, of the two, but but the, it's still fizzing and fat-free and fabulous. And even though people like like uh, Raymond Chandler went on to kind of perfect the hard-boiled medium, I would I would argue that it's Hammett's ball they were running with. It is a book you need to read. Oh. Brought it in just, just in got time. in there under the belt. I gave you an extra ten seconds yeah, as well okay. because of because of Dave's sort of uh, <laughs> extra line. Yeah, well, he had he had three thousand pages to <laughs> sum up. Three thousand <laughs> pages. That's true. That's fair. Oh wow. Um, 
God, I loved love listening to about both of those books. Actually, I must confess, I have only seen the film yeah. Mark of the Maltese Falcon, yeah. and hearing you talk about it makes me want to immediately read the book it and sort incredible. of also love. I love that. Um, I love it when there is an adaptation, a screen adaptation of books, and you you get to sort of read what and how different it is and the interpretations yeah. that have been made. Yeah, there were know. three. There were at least three. Uh, the, the, the Houston film was the last of the adaptation. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's the only one I've, yeah, yeah. I've seen. Oh, right. And it's great. It's terrific. But yeah. It's, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Bogart is not... Bogart is great, but he's not, he's he's not, not Sam, Sam Spade. Spade. And the other brilliant thing to say, and this is not me pitching the book, this is just additional information. Mm-hmm. And it's because those of us who write series fiction, as I do, live with this... It's the law of diminishing returns when it comes to a series. Uh, and you're always aware of that, the series that goes past its sell-by date, the character that, that goes oh, right. on too yeah. long. Yeah. And, you know, Hammett could have done that. One novel. One novel with this character in. He's also such a cool guy. When Joe Strummer was, was in hospitalised for hepatitis in 1978, The Maltese Falcon is the, is the book he chose to read. It's cool. Hammett is cool. <laughs> you know, if you went to prison refusing to name names to McCarthy, you know, there'd have been a lot more work if it wasn't for that and the fact that he was very ill a lot of the time. Yeah. Only four great novels, really. But but Maltese Falcon is the greatest of them. And I love that this biography is not finished, David, <laughs> and that it's still going. You know, I mean... And having read the 3,000 pages, as I, I imagine you have, you know, are you still... Well, this is the weird thing, you see. I occasionally meet people who've also, like me, read the, you know, f- first four volumes. I, Sid Griffin, you know, the musician, mm. Sid, you know, uh, Sid's one of them. And, of course, we all check nervously on the health of Robert Carroll. <laughs> so, because you think... And I say, you know, I, I look forward to the fourth, fifth volume of this the way I used to look forward to a new album by Steely Dan. Because once you've gone that far, yeah. Yeah. you've got to finish the story. And the parallel in the music world is Mark, Mark Lewison. Lewison. <laughs> this is in my head <laughs> as he was saying that. It's Mark, it is kind of mate. And, uh, you know, Mark has embarked on, on what is clearly yeah. going to be the definitive story of the Beatles. And he's delivered volume one, which is an absolute doorstop. Mm. And... Uh, and whenever I see him, I say, well, come on, <laughs> where's two? And he said, and like he says, I'm only going to do this once. Yeah. You know, mm. I don't want to do it early and find I've missed a bit or something like that. Volume two is the one I'm really waiting for well, as well. That's going to be, they so are brilliant, I, brilliant. You, you, there'll be many people looking at Mark nervously and thinking, am I going to live <laughs> to read? Because Mark's in no hurry. He wants to get it right. Yeah. And Robert Caro, although older, mm-hmm. Equally wants to get it right. Yeah, of course. And in both cases, I think they've, they've, um, you know, they've had access to witnesses to the events. So that's its primary research all the way through. You know, yeah. Yeah. and so there's always one more person that you you'd like to talk to. The know? detail in that Beatles book. I mean, I, I adore that's that volume one of that Beatles book. It was funny when you were talking about like Hank Marvin sending off for that strat. It reminded me of a bit in in volume one of Mark's. Uh, uh, Beatles stuff, where there's a moment where John and Paul have to get on a bus to go to the other side of Liverpool to, to knock on somebody's door. No, because somebody knows how to play a B7. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, but it really puts it in that context. It wasn't, they weren't music, but you no, couldn't just no, go and you couldn't well, look it, up how you played a chord. It's, you know. a very, it's, a, it's again a, a bit similar to Robert Carras, Lyndon Johnson, because it's, it's called The Years of Lyndon Johnson, because yeah. it's not just about him, it's about the world in which he came up. And yeah. similarly, Mark's book about the Beatles is oh, about the world absolutely. that produced the Beatles. Yeah. Because that's the thing that people find you know, difficult to understand. My favourite book, and can we talk about Mark's book, just one, Mark Lewis's book. My favourite book bit in that first volume 
is where he talks about Paul McCartney coming, having one day off in 1962 or whatever it is and coming down, hitchhiking from Liverpool to London with his then-girlfriend to go and see uh, his mate, Ivan, who's working as a bouncer at the Establishment Club, which was the satirical club in Soho. Was it in Soho? I think it was. That Peter Cook ran. Goes down there with a girlfriend. uh, Dudley Moore has just left and whatever, you know. They go back and doss on Ivan's floor, which is in Great Portland Street. And then the following morning, he goes for a walk around Fitzroy Square. And um, he writes the song, We Danced Through the Night and We Held Each Other's Tight, while walking around Fitzroy Square. Fitzroy now, Square. now, the beauty of that story is in Mark Lewison's book, That's a Footnote. <laughs> so you obviously got that too late to get it in the text. It's that must be the footnote. curse of the biographer. You know, you've finished a book <laughs> yes. and then you get a call from somebody going, oh, yeah, no, I used to be Paul McCartney. What? I'm, you know, scrubbing <laughs> it all always out. always something. Coincidentally, of course, Paul McCartney could only write while John Lennon was defecating. I don't know whether you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> Funny little parallel there. Yeah, just a little something to... <laughs> a little <laughs> nod to Lennon. At least I lodged that in your, uh, <laughs> in your mind. I love that there's going to be another book. I love that the years of Lyndon Johnson is about is about the world, but putting Lyndon at the sort of mm. centre of it. Um, <clears throat> but I've got to pick one to take home. I don't know if I could fit <laughs> quite right. those books in my bag. So, to, so I am <laughs> going to choose the Maltese Falcon on this occasion, I think, Mark, just because uh, I've never read it and I should. Well, it is. I mean, and I know I you, love, you love your crime fiction and it's one of those books that it kind of changes the way you see it, yeah. I think. And I've read, you know, as you, you mentioned, it was... It was the influence book, and I've read Chandler and all those other people around yep. that time. So I need to, I need to read, read him out. Um, but I'm, I'm intrigued. Maybe when the fifth book's out, I'll just get them all as a box set. Do you think, David? <laughs> do you, do you just, come out of it liking LBJ very oh, much? No, it doesn't, no, no, but that doesn't matter. But it just doesn't matter, mm, you know, because okay. you learn so much about the world and politics and how life works. You <laughs> know, don't forget Linda Johnson. You know, unpleasant individual though he was, is the man who was responsible for more civil rights legislation than anybody. Man responsible for the Great Society Initiative. Achieved a great deal and just has no no legend. Has no charisma. Because he became president after JFK was shot, did that not count as a term? Because he if, did the rest of the term. Right, but it didn't count as a term. Or, or, or was there still the law that you could only serve two terms then? You could yeah, serve... you could, yeah, you could only serve two. Okay. Yeah, okay. no, and it didn't count as a term because right. he was completing the term. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well. It's fascinating. Yeah. It, it would be, I would be interested to uh, delve into Because I, I started it. reading it. I first bought it in the late 80s or whatever. First two volumes mm. started, I thought... I can't get on with this. <laughs> this is mad. <laughs> this book's written in so much detail about this. And then a few years later, I, and I actually sold the copies I had. And, of course, the great virtue about the world we live in nowadays, you can always buy back anything you've ever, you've ever sold. And I got, them, I got them back and started again. And this time, I was just... What's interesting is I think you, with biography, you can read a much thicker... I, if I picked up a novel that was three inches thick, mm. okay. and you just go, life is too short. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, no, you're th- right. Th- that first volume of Mark Lewison's Beatles book is the, big, is the biggest book I've ever 
ploughed through. And I don't <laughs> mean, I don't mean, but I was absolutely riveted by every moment yeah, of it. Absolutely. I remember somebody saying to me, how are you getting on with the with that book? And I said, well, I'm three quarters of the way through it and, you know, Ringo's grandfather's just bought him a hat. <laughs> you know, or so, but I, I, absolutely well, every detail, but I wouldn't do that with a novel. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Quite right. And I, I did feel about Mark Lewiston's book that, you know, if you include everything, everything's interesting. Yeah. Oddly enough. Yeah. <laughs> I think the real winner of this book off is the Mark Lewis it's book, Lewis. isn't it? So I think we but should all get on. We should all go and get on because he's an amazing man. But one of the funniest oh, things really I ever good. saw was at the Lawn Festival. It may have been that Lawn Festival you mentioned, where a uh, very funny man called David Quantic you mm. know, was was know interviewing Mark about that book. <laughs> so for an hour, or rather for fifty nine minutes, it's Beatles, 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 detail, detail, detail about the Beatles and the social context in which the Beatles grew up and the Beatles music and the best Beatles albums and whatever. And at the very end, Quantic went, "Just one more question." Um, Mark, Beatles or Stones? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Brilliant. Well, gents, I could sit here all afternoon and while away many more hours, but uh, sadly we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you both for, for joining me and taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Um, Uncommon People, published by Black Swan, is out now, as is Love Like Blood, published by Little Brown, and a new book coming in June. In June, you said. yeah, Excellent. called The Killing Habit. The Killing Habit, we'll look out for that. And uh, what do you think, David? You got, a, got another book in you? They're put, uh, we're putting out a book later this year of kind of, of, of stuff I've already written, bits and pieces, mm. called Nothing Is Real. A collection. A collection. Excellent. And then there'll be another one next year. Well, we look forward to that. Um, thank you again, both of you, and, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Book Off. And if you have, please do spread the word. They say social media is currency. So if you have a Twitter or Instagram or fax machine, then please do tell your friends and spread the love. We are at Odoo Book Off on all channels. And until next time, bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.